0: Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho, copyright 2018. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, you may call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. The text this morning is Psalm 98. These are the words of God. O sing unto the Lord a new song, for he hath done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm hath gotten him the victory. The Lord hath made known his salvation. His righteousness hath he openly showed in the sight of the heathen. He hath remembered his mercy and his truth toward the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all the earth. Make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praise. Sing unto the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the voice of a psalm. With trumpets and sound of a cornet, make a joyful noise before the Lord, the King. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Let the floods clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together. Before the Lord, for he cometh to judge the earth with righteousness, shall he judge the world and the people with equity. O oh, our God and Father, we are your people and the sheep of your pasture. We pray that your Spirit would assemble us now and teach our hearts. Tear down all the defenses and excuses that we may have erected against you. Mold us, we pray, and in Jesus' name we pray, and amen. Amen. As we learn to sing psalms back to God, where God gives us the words to sing, God gives us a psalter to sing from, and as we learn to sing psalms back to him, one of the things that we're learning to do is how to address him as he would like to be addressed. God teaches us how to speak to him. God doesn't leave it up to us to figure out how to approach him. Instead of cooking up our own idea of pious noises and liturgical shuffling around, our own our own extempora musical that we make up as we go along, instead of that we can read the script, we can commune with the librettist, we can follow the stage directions. The Psalms are an enormous help in this. When you find yourself singing something and you wonder, I wonder if it's okay to sing this way to God, and then you say, oh, wait, it's in the Bible. it, It must be okay because this is what he has given to us to sing to him. One of the things that we're learning how to do when we work through the Psalms, when we learn to sing Psalms, when we worship God, is we're having our piety shaped and formed in accordance with the word of God. And and Psalm 98 is a marvelous example of this. This Psalm can be divided basically into three stanzas. The first concerns why we are invited to praise Jehovah, verses one through three. The second addresses how, verses four through six, which largely involves various instruments. And the third has to do with the matter of who. And the who is universal, the who is all the created order, the, the waves, the, the hills, everything, praise the Lord. So, why are we to praise God? Secondly, how are we to praise God? And not only with instruments, but we're to praise God noisily. We're to praise God with a great noise. And then the third has to do with who praises God. And the invitation is given to everyone to praise God. So in the first instance, we are to praise God because his strong right arm has obtained the victory. Verse 1, God is not defeated. The one place that you might point to where God was defeated was when Christ was crucified, and, and that was only an apparent defeat because by his death, he was throwing down the one who had the power of death, that is the devil. Christ was conquering when he died. So Christ, God God in heaven, Christ on earth, the spirit as he moves, his strong right arm has gotten him the victory. God wins. You cannot understand the world unless you understand that God, of necessity, in order to be God, has it his way. It goes his way. It goes according to his plan. He has obtained the victory for himself. We are to praise him because he does not keep the fact of his salvation secret. That's in verse 2. The fact that he saved you, the fact that he saved me, the fact that he saved all of us is not something he's embarrassed about. God is not embarrassed about being associated with us. He saved us on purpose. It wasn't like he gave a general invitation to absolutely anyone and then was kind of shook up with who showed up. He knew who was going to show up, he determined who was going to show up, and he trumpets the fact of his salvation to the whole world. Verse 2, he does not keep the fact of his salvation a secret. He has remembered his mercy and truth with regard to Israel, and the whole world can see that. So this is why we praise Jehovah. God saves, he obtains the victory, and he's not embarrassed by the victory that he has obtained. He's not, embar- he's not ashamed, as it says in the New Testament, he's not ashamed to call us brothers. He's not ashamed to be associated with us as his people. This is why we praise Jehovah. Jehovah has saved us. He has obtained the victory through what he has done. And he is remem- he's, he's uh, pleased and happy to be associated with those that he has brought into salvation. So that's the first stanza of this psalm, one through three. This is why we praise Jehovah. He saves us, he has obtained the victory for himself, and he's not embarrassed at all by what he has done. Secondly, make a joyful noise. Make a loud noise. Do it with song, verse 4. Sing to the Lord with a harp and also with a psalm, verse 5. And all the jubilation, add to all the jubilation, some brass. Verse 6. Act like this is the coronation of a king because that is exactly what it is. So this is how we're to do it. We're to be a noisy lot. We are to make noise in a jubilant way. Now, this is to be joy first and then the noise. It's not, you're not making noise as a way to climb into joy. You, you can't make a, a mountain of noise and climb up it and find joy at the top. It's joy as the bedrock. You've got to be a if you want to be the kind of person who is worshiping God in accordance with Psalm 98. It's got to be joy at the bedrock and noise at the top. All right, you climb up the mountain of joy and you find it's noisy up there. It's not the other way around. We're not trying to attain joy through music. We're trying to express joy through music. We're expressing joy through music and we're expressing joy through loud music. If I can just say this in passing, one of the reasons we want to build a sanctuary, one of the reasons we want to um, to design a particular sanctuary, a, a specific sanctuary to worship in, is so that we can make it noisier. We need we need a livelier space. We and then at the conclusion of the psalm where every, inanimate objects the hills and the oceans everything is invited to join in the praise well that includes architectural design we want to be a noisy group of christians as we praise god not noise for its own sake but noise for the sake of this is it's the only appropriate way to express the kind of joy that we have in having a god who has obtained the victory and is not embarrassed to be with us. And that's that's quite striking because if God's not embarrassed to be with us, why on earth would we be embarrassed to be with him, be, be with him? Why are we ashamed of him? It should if 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 there if there's to be shame anywhere, it should go the other way. God should be ashamed of us, but he isn't. So we should we must not be ashamed of him, and that ties in with the noise. The third stanza, let the fullness of the oceans join in on the chorus not excluding all the inhabitants of those oceans, verse 7. So the water and the whales, the water and the fish, the water, all the inhabitants of the ocean are to praise God. Waves crashing together on the offbeat are glorious. And because the hills refuse to be left out, they also rejoice. Everything rejoices. So the waves crashing together remind the psalmist of, of men clapping, And all of us sing together in joy because of, and this is the thing that I want to focus on in the message today, all of this is coming together, we're singing with jubilation because of the coming judgment. Judgment is coming, sing. The judge is at the door, sing. This judgment, verse 9, is going to be a sheer relief for the planet, not to mention all the nations judgment is coming. That's why we need to learn how to sing better. That's why we need to learn how to be noisier in our singing. That's why we need to add more instruments. Why? Because the judge is coming. Because judgment is coming. Now, that raises some questions that I hope to get to in a moment. I wanted to say something just uh, as a, a parenthetical observation about Mary, the mother of the Lord. Our Lord's mother if if she married at the at the time when it was customary for young women to marry in that era she was probably around 14. All right? So we don't don't have any scriptural data saying that she was that age, but if she if she married at the customary age for women in that generation, she was a teenager. So, when Gabriel appeared to her, he's appearing to someone in high school, maybe junior high, you know, just a very young woman. Now, not only at that age, not only was she of such a character to be chosen by God at such a tender age, she was also, and her character is evidenced in her willing response to God, uh, be it unto me as you've spoken. So she she responds submissively, but she doesn't just respond submissively and stupidly. It's not submission because she's uneducated. It's, it's a highly educated submission. Let me say that again. It's a highly educated submission. Well, how do we know this? Well, she responds with the Magnificat, something we're going to be, no doubt, singing in the Advent season coming up. She responds with the Magnificat. And the woman who wrote that, on the fly, apparently, was a woman who was steeped in Old Testament scriptures. This is, a, this is a young woman who was saturated in the Old Testament scriptures. The heading of this psalm, Psalm 98, says simply a psalm, and the Magnificat was also very much a psalm. Filled with echoes of this psalm, as the commentator Adam Clark notes Sing a new song to the Lord. That's what David says. Mary answers, my soul doth magnify the Lord. He has done marvelous things, and Mary answers, he that is mighty hath done great things. His arm hath gotten him the victory, and Mary answers, he hath showed strength with his arm. The Lord has made known his salvation, and Mary answers, his mercy is from generation to generation. He has remembered the house of Israel, and Mary answers, he hath holpen his servant Israel. This is a woman who has stored up the Word of God in her heart. This is a woman who was ready for the visit of Gabriel. She didn't say, Oh no, the archangel has come to visit me and has, has promised that I'm going to be the mother of the of the Messiah. I better buy a Bible. I, 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 better, I, I better go check this out. She was prepared. The day before Gabriel came to came to her, she was prepared prepared, and she was prepared because she was steeped in Scripture. So Mary is the model of submission. Mary is the model of a deferential response to God, and she was ready for that, and the thing that prepared her for it was education in the Scriptures. The thing that prepared her to be submissive was not knowledge that puffs up, but knowledge and love that built up. And you see the influence of this psalm, Psalm 98, all the way through her magnificent Magnificat. Now, the thing that is interesting to us is that uh, verse 9 at the tail end. So judgment is coming, and, and it says, before, uh, let the floods clap their hands, let the hills be joyful together before the Lord, for he cometh to judge the earth. With righteousness shall he judge the world. And the people with equity. So God's going to come. He's going to judge the world with righteousness, and He's going to judge the people with equity. And and all God's people said, "Oh, good." You say, "Haven't you read the book of Revelation and hundred-pound hailstones and fire and torment and plagues and scorpions and how? Why is that? Why is that a, 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 something that we ought to?" Um, respond with, why would we respond with jubilation to that? Well, in Scripture, is if you are reading your Bibles, if you're students of the Word, as our Lord's mother obviously was, if you're reading Genesis to Revelation, if you're reading God's Word over and over and over again, if you're marinating in God's Word, you understand that God gives us multiple metaphors to understand our relationship to Him. He doesn't give us just one metaphor. What happens is different generations, different denominations, different groups of Christians, different traditions of, Christi- of, of Christianity. Oftentimes, seize on one metaphor, and then they ride that one metaphor until it dro- until they drop, until it drops. They just say, "This is the way it is." Well, this idea of God as judge is one of those metaphors. I want you to think about the difference between criminal and civil cases. I want you to think about the difference between criminal and civil cases. Because in the West, in the Protestant West particularly, the metaphor that we have of judgment is that of a criminal case. We think of of a criminal case and we think of ourselves as the accused, as the defendant. In scripture, we're invited to think about our relationship to God with different images. If we think biblically, we can use all of them profitably, not allowing one of them to dominate, and and without falling into the trap of applying them woodenly. For example, when we think of of the coming judgment, we are invited to think of it as a criminal trial in a capital case with ourselves as the accused. The judge is coming, judgment is at the door, and all God's people said, "Uh uh-oh, I need to go buy a Bible. Right? I, need to go ch- I need to bone up. I, n- I need to uh, behave myself. Jesus is coming. Look busy. Well, looking busy doesn't fool uh, anyone in the, in the celestial places. So this God's, God coming as a judge in a criminal case makes us tremble. If we just use that one metaphor, it makes us tremble as it should. Nothing short of a perfect justification could deliver us from this. Now, on your outline, uh, I've got a misplaced sentence. The sentence that has uh, uh, Psalm 67 and 96 and 35 should go at the end of the next paragraph. It doesn't belong to this paragraph. I want to, um, so I want to contrast the judge in a criminal trial, who is a hanging judge, and the judge in a civil trial. Scripture over and over again invites us to think of the judgment of God coming as here in this psalm, Psalm 98, as a civil case with ourselves as the plaintiffs. So there's one case, you're the accused, you're on trial for murder, and you're guilty, and God is strictly holy, and he's going to nail the defendant. He's going to nail the accused. That's one image, that's, and that's a scriptural metaphor. You find that in the book of Romans. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one every mouth is stopped before God. We are the accused. We are the guilty. Uh, that, that is a scriptural metaphor, but it's not the only scriptural metaphor. We are also invited to think of, think of ourselves as trying to get into God's court. We want to get into the courtroom because we've got an ironclad case here and nobody's listening to us. In the former illustration, we want to get out of the courtroom as rapidly as possible and with minimal fines or, or without being hanged. In the latter illustration, the difficulty is getting into the courtroom. All right, so in one metaphor, you want to get out of the courtroom with your skin entire. And the other metaphor, you the only thing you want is to, is to get your case heard. You want to get on the docket. So The difficulty often in corrupt societies is precisely that. It's not not trying to get out of the courtroom. It's trying to get into the courtroom. Your case is ironclad, and the problem is that no one will listen to you. The good news is that Jehovah himself is coming, and he will listen. Jehovah himself is coming, and he is going to listen to you. He is going to hear you out. This is the case with the widow in the Lord's parable in Luke 18:3. Remember, the the, unju- the widow is pounding on the, the door of the unjust judge. That was the, that's the scenario. She just gave the judge no peace until he finally said, "Fine, fine, fine. I'll I'll hear your hear your case." She wants into the courtroom. Consider Psalm 67:4, Psalm 96:12 and 13, Psalm 35:24. Judgment, under this metaphor, judgment in in, in an instance like this, is a matter of jubilant joy. It's a matter of jubilant joy. God is going to come, and he is going to straighten out every crooked thing. He is going to put everything right. God is going to put everything right. Now, obviously, when God comes and puts everything right, the people who were wronged by that wrong thing are jubilant that that wrong thing is put right. But what about the people who made it go wrong? Well, that's the other metaphor, right? The person the, the people who are dominated by cruelty, the people who are full of themselves, the people who measure all of all of their interactions with all of their friends, all of all of their family members, they cannot they cannot be persuaded to step out of their own skin and look at the other, per- the other person's position in, a, in any kind of objective way. The golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, requires us to step out of our own perspective. You, ha- you, can't, you can't apply the golden rule if you only see it your way, if you only see it your way, if, well, if my wife only did thus and such, then, or if my husband only did thus and such, then, if my neighbor only did this and this and this, then everything would be great. So, suppose suppose uh, you're complaining and whining and moaning about your situation, and to anybody who will listen, and the number over the years of those who are willing to listen is steadily declining, and, and you are, but you're still complaining, you're still moaning. And I say, good news, good news, God is going to come down tomorrow, and he is going to put everything in your situation absolutely right. Now, some people who've been kidding themselves, thinking that, the, the you know, the plaintiff who's kidding himself, the plaintiff who thinks he's got a great case, and he doesn't have a great case, that's going to, he's in for a rude awakening. If God comes down as the judge in a civil, in a civil case, and he intervenes, It's not going to go as expected, but it's good news when God intervenes in the civil case, in this tangle, in this marriage trouble, in this business snarl, in the hurt feelings that went this way and that way, in all the people, all the people who don't understand you, all the people who don't, you know, don't, 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 whatever it is that they're not doing. When God comes down and intervenes and puts everything right, there will be great rejoicing, in a number of quarters, and there will be dismay, consternation in others. Because, as it says, before the Lord, for he cometh to judge the earth, with righteousness shall he judge the world. He is going to come, and he's going to, he's going to apply a straight edge to this situation, and he is going to, without hesitation, without shrinking, without any kind of... Uh, softening he's just going to say this is right and this is not right this is righteous and this is not righteous then we all say uh oh then we're all in trouble now we're all in trouble even with this intervention uh, now are not we all in trouble yes and that's why I want to finish this message by talking about Jesus the the judge who is the judge in the criminal trial is Jesus the judge who is the judge in the civil trial is Jesus and so, you—if you want to be assured of what's going to happen, you need to be friends with Jesus now. You need to be right with Jesus now. You need to—you th- need to think it through now. We'll come to that in a minute. The judge is at the door. In this psalm, we—we are lear- we, This is what partly what i, I meant. I, I said earlier in the. In the West, this is, I said the Protestant West, but I think this is a Western characteristic, Roman Catholic, in the Western uh, tradition, Roman Catholic and Protestant alike, uh, when we think of courts and God as judge, guilt is the thing that comes up. Uh, And that is a biblical theme. That's not unscriptural. But there is this other theme where, at last, vindication is one of the things that comes up. Vindication, I'm going to be justified, it's going to be put right. And when we, as I, I began by saying, we're invited to sing the psalms. We, we sing, for example, um, uh, Psalm 67. We sing, uh, we sing Psalm 96. We sing Psalm 35. We sing Psalm 98. And we're learning how to think like a plaintiff. We're learning how to think scripturally like a plaintiff. God, would you hear my case? The judge is at the door. He will dry every tear. Revelation 21, 4. He will bind up every wound. Psalm 147, verse 3. He will set every bone. He will will untie the knots of every treachery. He will reverse the effects of every desertion. Every desertion, every treachery, every double cross, he's going to put it all right. Every disease is going to be sponged away. Every cruelty will be dissolved into nothingness. No unrepentant sinner will be given the power to blackmail the redeemed cosmos out of her joy. If someone refuses to let go of their bitterness, if someone refuses to let go of their complaint, if someone refuses to stop complaining when the judge has arrived, That complainer, that whiner, that moaner is not going to be allowed, not going to be permitted to rob the rest of the redeemed cosmos of her joy. You you don't have to worry about, are are the redeemed in heaven going to be upset and not able to enjoy heaven because there are people in hell? That's what I mean. No. The people in hell are clinging to what they insist upon clinging to, and God is not going to permit their rebellion to to be a way of blackmailing the universe. The fatherless will be brought to their everlasting father. And all the pieces of this glorious story will be fitted together and there will be no remainder. Every little fragment, every little piece of this broken world is going to be reassembled and every last piece is going to have a place to go and there aren't going to be any parts left over. Nothing. Why? Because the judge is at the door. Every quarrel, every falling out, every divorce, every estrangement with a son, every estrangement with a daughter or a mother or a father or an uncle or an aunt, every every last one of those things, all of it is going to be put Right, all of it is going to be put right, and you and we think, how can God do possibly do that? Who does He think He is? Think, listen to yourself. God is God, and God is the Judge. And when the Judge, rightly understood in His role as a Judge, when He's at the door, God's God's the the hearts of God's people leap for joy. That's how we are to think of him. Why? Not because because our case is as ironclad as all that, but rather because we are in Christ. Christ Christ is the judge who's going to do this for us. So here's the question. What do you make of Jesus? What do you make of Jesus? That's going to be the dividing line between the judge as the hanging judge in a criminal case, or the judge who rises up to vindicate you and put everything right where it ought to be. What do you make of Jesus? He was crucified. He was buried. He was raised. He was raised again in the ascension and then enthroned. He is now seated at the right hand of the Ancient of Days and every creature is summoned to face him. Every creature is summoned into his presence. Every creature comes to look Jesus straight in the face. And at that moment, there's only going to be one possible binary choice. You will love or you will not. You will love him or you will not love him. And your best indicator, incidentally, of which way it's going to be is whether or not you love him now. All right? Do you love him now or do you not? Do you follow him now or do you not? Do you do it his way or do you do it your way? So every creature, I don't, I don't know how this is going to work at the last judgment because there are, are a lot of us, but at that moment, at the last judgment, you will be face to face with your judge. You will be face to face with your judge. You will either continue to look him in the face or you will turn away. You're summoned to face him. You're going to refuse to do so or you will do so. The Latin word, convertere, means to turn around. And it's where we get the word conversion. When someone is converted, they are turned around. When someone is going this way and they convert, they start going the other way. Convert is a 180. If you're running from from Christ, if you're running from Jesus, to be converted is to turn around and face him. And want to face him. Face him because you love him as opposed to being forcefully turned around and then rejecting that and turning away. Our solemn responsibility, starting now, not starting at the last day, but starting now, starting whenever you hear the gospel preached, our solemn responsibility is to turn and face Christ. Turn and face Christ. If we do, if we turn, then we're going to be looking on the one who was pierced. If we, we will see him. And that means we will see the judge who undertakes on our behalf. If you turn to face Christ, if I say, which way will you go? Will you continue to run away or will you turn and face Christ? If you turn to face Christ, you are facing the judge. If you re- refuse to turn to face Christ, you're running away from the judge. Christ is the judge in either case. When you turn and face him, you are facing the judge who vindicates when you run from him, you are facing the judge who judges. We can know that Christ is the one who undertakes on our behalf because when we turn and face him, we're looking at the judge who undertook, past tense, on our behalf. He is the one we're looking on the one who was pierced. We're looking on the one who had a spear run into his side 2000 years ago. We're looking on the one who had nails driven into his hands and feet. We're looking at the one who was flogged for us. So when we turn and look at him, we're looking at the judge who took the punishment for the accused. You see that? So you, you can have this metaphor or that one. You're the accused. And if you turn and face him, you're looking at the one who took your place. So this is the foundational issue. Christ either undertakes for you, and does so as one kind of judge, or he overtakes you, doing so as the other kind of judge. Christ either undertakes for you as one kind of vindicating judge, or he overtakes you as the judge in a criminal trial. Do you want to look on the face of a merciful judge? Then you must repent. You must turn around. You must look upon his face you must say, Lord, I want to look into the eyes of Jesus Christ. I want to turn and look him full in the face. We are preaching the gospel which reveals the face of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. The face of Jesus Christ. We're declaring the face of Jesus Christ. If you look him in the face, and he says, turn around, repent, Drop all your complaints. Drop all your quarrels. Any of your reasonable quarrels, any of your, re- you're the plaintiff after all. If you, if you turn, you're the plaintiff. But drop all your complaints. Any of them that are reasonable, he will pick up. Any of your complaints, any of your charges, any of your issues that are your, where you're, you were right, you're in the right. He's not going to let those He's not going to let the... He's going to pick them up. He's going to deal with them. He is the kind vindicating judge. Or do you want the other kind of judge? Do you want the face of a merciful judge? Then you must repent. You must turn around. You must look upon his face. If you want the other kind of judge, and no one in their right mind does, you intend to continue running away from him, running pell-mell through all your slippery sins, You who are stuck in the miry clay, do you think you can make your escape? You're not facing him, you're running from him. Do you really think that you have the competence to successfully run from absolute justice? Do you actually think that you can run for the border? There is no border. We're talking about God. We're talking about the infinite, omnipresent, omniscient God and you're not facing him, and you think I'm going to run for the I'm going to run to the place where he has no jurisdiction. There is no such place. The place you are running to is called the outer darkness for a reason, and the outer darkness has no shape. There are no everything. Christ is king everywhere. Christ is the ruler everywhere. So everything boils down to this: it's which way you're facing. Are you facing him in faith, or you turned away from him in unbelief? The rebellious option is to flee and to feel necessarily the iron clasp of an avenging judge grip your shoulder. Or you might turn around as the gospel commands and see both of his hands outstretched, palms up, extended toward you, and pierced clean through. That's ultimately the only decision in your life that matters at all. Everything else, all all of your other decisions, all of your other choices, all of your other pursuits can be fit underneath that choice, whichever way it goes. Everything is either put right because you turned and faced him, or it's not because you refused to. It boils down to this, yes or no. Christ is there. Christ is the judge. That's not optional. Yes or no determines what kind of judge. Yes or no determines which way it's going to go, and this is why, as we learn as God's people to sing a psalm like Psalm 98, the judge is coming. The judge is at the door. When we sing those words, if we were if we're singing about a criminal trial, everybody should drop their psalter. (laughs) You know, the judge is coming. He's going to judge the nations. Oh no, and then. I I need to run. Well, the only way to run from the wrath of God is to turn and run toward the wrath of God. That's the only way out. When I said earlier, there is no border, there is no way to run, there is one direction where you can run, and that's toward him. If you turn and face the Lord Jesus Christ, you are running toward the crucified one, and the crucified one was crucified under the wrath of God, so that when you come to Christ that way, his wrath is fully propitiated. The wrath of God is fully expended. There is nothing left over. All, all that is left is for you to enjoy your status as a son or a daughter. But you can't take your sin with you. That, that's the deal. You have to let it go, drop it. Let, as, as Top Lady says in Rock of Ages, nothing in my hand I bring. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross... I cling. That's the way it's got to go. This and this is gospel. This is just good news. Gospel. The way the gospel works is that it is an encouragement to those who do not know Christ yet to turn and come to Christ. It is also an encouragement to all those who have turned in their life, who are Christians, who are genuine Christians. They are encouraged to renew their their focus on looking to Christ finding satisfaction and nothing else, come to Christ. It's all Jesus, all the time, all Jesus, all the time. And if you are facing him, then there is no condemnation, Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are running away from Christ, there's nothing but condemnation. Do you see that? No condemnation in Christ, running away from him, nothing but condemnation. Condemnation. One other thing: there are some people who found out, who figured out, figured out probably in the first century, that church is a good place to hide from God. Growing up in the church is a good way to hide from God. Memorizing Psalms is a good way to hide from God. Doing all the stuff that makes other people think that you're a good Christian is a good way to hide from God. No pretense, no varnish, no juking around. Just God, just you and me. I'm facing you or I'm not. I'm facing Christ or I'm not facing Christ. I want to be with him or I don't want to be with him. This is not that hard. Christ crucified and you're with him forever. Christ as the judge and you want to escape from him and you will never be able to escape from him forever. God judges the world through Christ. God saves the world through Christ. And that's why we're gathered here. We're Christians, we believe him. We are worshiping him. We are facing him, those of us who are facing him, worshiping him in spirit and in truth. Gracious God in heaven, we bow before you now and we ask you to drive this word deep into our hearts and we ask that you would do this through your Holy Spirit who dwells within us. As we come to this table, it is natural for us to think about what we are doing. We want to understand the meaning of the sacrament. We want to reflect on it as we come. We want to have departed from all known sin and we want to look around so that we might enjoy the fellowship of all the saints as we come and so on. This is all good and proper. But because it is a communion meal, because we are fellowshipping with God as we come to this table, we also want to remember that this is a time when God is doing things. It is not as though we are active in this communion and he is passive. No, not at all. God is actively at work in our midst as we come to communion with Him. He is the one who knits us together in love through His Spirit. He is the one who strengthens us with His grace so that we might be equipped to do the things He has assigned to us for this coming week. He is the one who teaches us to taste His goodness in a way that grows over time. God is at work. This is His sacrament, and we partake of it by grace." This is one of the places where God works into you the things that he expects you to work out. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it says in Philippians, for God is at work in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. This is one of the places where God is working his good pleasure into you, and it is here that you are permitted to enjoy that pleasure, resolving with gladness by faith to work it out. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Our Father in God, we thank you for this table, we thank you for what it cost you to provide it for us, and we pray that your spirit would work in us so that we approach it properly and rightly as we ought. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The charge is this, it's simple, simple, and binary, it's either yes to Jesus or no to Jesus, either yes to Christ or no to Christ, it's either you're going to follow him or you're not going to follow him, and if you don't follow him, you could not follow him any number of places. You could not follow him in church or out of church. You could do it as a rank pagan. You could do it as a professing Christian. You could do it as someone who studies theology and doctrine. You can not follow Jesus in all kinds of places. But it's not going to be possible for you to lie to yourself if you're not following him. It's Christ or chaos, Christ or nothing, Christ or the abyss. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.